guys. Welcome back to the Forking Wellness Podcast. My name is Barry Strickoff, Registered Dietitian. And I'm Sophie Bertrand, Registered Nutritionist, and we are the authors of the Forking Wellness book and obviously the Forking Wellness Podcast. Each week we sit down and we discuss all things health and wellness from debunking diet myths to nutrition information, lifestyle factors, etc. Stick with us while we try and work out what the Fork Wellness really is. I don't even know what we do. This week, we are sponsored by Tree of Life, which is an amazing company aimed at making health easy by providing you and your family a wide range of delicious whole foods. They cater to all sorts of diets. So if you're vegan or gluten-free or dairy-free for whatever reason, they have so many different options, including pastas, cooking sauces, different snacking options, chocolates, etc. They sent us an amazing package. Um, I'm really excited to try their Manuka honey as well as restocking up on my chia seeds. I'm really loving their oat milk. They do different types of oat milk as well. So one is really foamable for if you're making your coffees or matcha lattes and Um, the other one is enriched with extra calcium and vitamin D and B vitamins so again if you're vegan it's a really good plant drink alternative. They also offer a wide range of soil association certified organic products for the health of your family and the planet. One of their goals is to make health easy and that includes the health of our planet and the communities they work with around the world. Many of their foods are sourced through fair share partnerships and they are on a mission to find improved ways to package the products that are sustainable for the environment. If you guys want to try out the delicious products from Tree of Life, head to their website www.treeoflifefoods.co.uk, sign up to their newsletter and get 20% off your next order. Hi guys, welcome back to the Forking Wellness Podcast. We have such an exciting guest today. Um, I've been a huge fan of hers since I first went into practice. We are speaking to Christy Harrison, who is a anti-diet registered dietitian. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're so, so excited to have you and kind of hear more about your your story and your journey and how you got to where you are today. And then also, I'm, I just finished listening to your audiobook and I found it really interesting we'll get more into that in a bit but please like introduce yourself to the audience I'm sure a lot of people already know who you are but for those who don't sure yeah so I'm Christy Harrison I'm a registered dietitian I always say I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian um, and certified intuitive eating counselor based in the U.S. and I'm also a journalist and I've been a journalist since the beginning of my career which was 18 years ago now which is wild Um, and so I've I I did journalism full-time for six or seven years before going back to school to become a dietitian and get my master's in public health nutrition. And all that time was very much in the traditional diet culture paradigm of thinking that, you know, we needed to shrink people's bodies and that there was a right and wrong way to eat and went back to school for public health nutrition, thinking I was going to quote unquote, help solve the obesity epidemic. And now I even cringe at that term. But at the time I was really bought in. And it wasn't until um, I was in school, I happened to also be in therapy for my own eating issues because this was the other thing. Like during the whole time I was full-time in journalism, you know, from the start of my career, I had seriously disordered eating at one point, probably would have 
you know, been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I never did get diagnosed, but, um, was sort of in and out of, you know, eating disorder, disordered eating all along that spectrum. And so that's what really attracted me to food and nutrition reporting in the first place. That was my, you know, chosen beat was food, nutrition, and health. Those were the things I was most passionate about and covered with zeal. And, um, so when I went back to school, I also had the idea of, you know, I'm going to help end the obesity epidemic. And I'm also going to, uh, write books and, you know, be like the next Michael Pollan or Marion Nestle. I really looked up to people like that and thought that that was sort of my path would be writing about, you know, sustainable food systems and how they could like save our health and shrink people's bodies and stuff. And, um, you know, sort of winding road from there. But basically I, I started working on a book in grad school about emotional eating that never saw the light of day, but I worked on that proposal and did a bunch of research for it. And that's how I stumbled into intuitive eating, I discovered that book and um, some of the research showing that diets don't work, that, you know, restrictive eating causes binging. And so that was sort of the first like opening into, oh, wow, it doesn't have to be this way. I don't have to see myself as an emotional eater. Maybe there is another way. And I had been an intuitive eater up until the age of 20, which was thanks to a lot of different privileges, you know, not I was, was in a smaller body. And so no one told me to lose weight, which is thin privilege, you know, nobody interfered in my relationship with food that way. I was also, you know, economically secure. My family had enough to eat all the time. So I never had that piece of food insecurity interfering in my relationship with food. And so, you know, up until the age of 20, I was able to maintain my intuitive eating skills. So when I, you know, descended into disordered eating, it was because I had gained a little bit of weight during a study abroad program. And that just kind of kicked off 10 years of disordered eating. Um, but I, you know, when I was starting to recover, I really tapped back into that intuitive eating that I had been born with or all born with and that I had practiced for the first 20 years of my life. So I think that helped sort of pave the way for my recovery and also psychotherapy, which I'm privileged to have been able to afford. And, you know, really, I think it's been the key to so much healing in my life. Um, and so those were kind of the ways that I personally healed. And I think once that happened, I, it really opened my eyes to the problems with you know, nutrition and dietetics and how it treats people and how it creates eating disorders oftentimes, right? It's, you know, I started to become interested in prevention and then I started seeing the conditions that create eating disorders like everywhere around me. And so that's what got me interested in health at every size and intuitive eating. Um, and I started specializing in eating disorders and sort of that's how I ended up getting all the way to this anti-diet place that I am now. Amazing. I think it's so important to recognize as well how still, unfortunately, health and weight are being so kind of interlinked. And like you said, we're made to believe that smaller bodies are healthier and that's such a big problem still. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think getting worse in some ways too, mm. because, you know, I've been seeing with the pandemic, I know in the UK, you have a lot of this, right? The you mm. know Boris Johnson saying, I got COVID because I was fat and yeah. I'm going to put, you know, the whole country on a diet basically. Um, yeah. and pushing for calorie labels and all this stuff. And I think, you know, we see that here too. I mean, we already had, you know, some, a lot of public health um, pushes to, you know, do calorie labeling and force people to lose weight in various contexts and stuff kind of for, you know, decades now. But um, I think COVID has definitely amplified that has it, it's, you know, I think in the last 20 years or so, we've seen sort of this rise and then 
beginning of a decline of diet culture because there, there has been the rise of health at every size and the anti-diet and intuitive eating philosophies. And, um, you know, people were starting to move away from diet culture. And I think the diet industry, frankly, was starting to get nervous, you know, and think yeah. about ways to try to um, retain its user base. Yeah, and I've seen like, right. And I've seen these like, you know, industry reports, market research reports geared toward the industry that say, you know, any diet company that doesn't sort of pivot to wellness to target millennials is sure to wither and die, you know? And so like, they're very cognizant, I think, of the fact that they need to rebrand as wellness. And so that's what they've been trying to do in the last, you know, 10 years or so, I think is the shift away from calling it a diet to calling it a lifestyle, a plan, a wellness protocol, you know, all of these different things. And it really is still the same thing. It's still diet culture. It's still this system of beliefs that, you know, pathologizes larger bodies and lionizes smaller ones and demonizes some foods while elevating others and promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health, right? It's all these things just under this new guise of wellness. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on something there that I, I've been like the, one of the things I'm dying to talk to you about um, is this kind of shift towards wellness. I mean, that's the whole point of our podcast, like what the fork is wellness. Um, but uh, just to get straight into it, like I love intuitive eating. Like you said, like I'm a natural, like, like you said before, you're a natural intuitive eating eater before the age of 20. Like I've been a pretty much an intuitive eater my entire life, very much identify as an intuitive eater now, but I feel as though I can't, as a dietitian, like I can't really buy into the movement of intuitive eating because I see it has been corrupted by the wellness industry. And I genuinely feel sometimes like hell hath no fury as a dietitian who admits she's not like an intuitive eating practitioner. <laughs> like, I feel like people, the, they're so skeptical when I say that, but I feel as though so many people are practicing disordered eater, disordered eating under the guise of intuitive eating and with this shift towards wellness, like I just see it so much. Mm -hmm. And have you seen this as well? Or is this something that you're worried about? I've definitely seen the co-opting of intuitive eating and I've seen people trying to position themselves. You know, oftentimes I think it's, it's lay people who are doing this, right? It's influencers. Mm -hmm. It's people who maybe aren't necessarily trained as dietitians or anything to do with, um, you know, maybe they took a, 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 an online course through IIN or something like that, but they're not actually like, you know, seriously trained in a sort of healthcare profession and, um, are selling intuitive eating as a diet. You know, I definitely see that a lot. I see people saying, you know, intuitive eating will help you lose the weight. Intuitive eating is how I lost weight. Intuitive eating is, is why I only eat whole unprocessed plant-based mm -hmm. foods, you know, yes. have the air quotes around all of that. Right. Um, so I definitely see that. And I think that that co-optation, that effort to co-opt intuitive eating is really, you know, speaks to its popularity mm -hmm. and the fact that people kind of want to get on board in order to capitalize on this moment where intuitive eating is, <clears throat> excuse me, intuitive eating is really having a moment, you know, and so people want to want to capitalize on that. And I also think that, you know, I practice intuitive eating in my work as a dietitian and a journalist, you know, to the extent that I sort of um, give public education as a journalist. 
um, in a way that is aligned with the original intentions of intuitive eating and the, you know, the, the sort of philosophy of intuitive eating that Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch developed starting in the 1990s. And it's evolved, of course, since then. They've updated. They're now in the fourth edition of the book. And, you know, it's it's been updated to reflect sort of a growing uh, awareness of anti-diet and health at every size that they didn't have at the beginning. Um, and so it's become, you know, fully anti-diet now, whereas like the first edition, there was still a little of that promise of if you do this, you'll lose weight, right? So there's evolution that's happened in the in the field. Um, but these are, you know, two registered dietitians who are who've been doing this for you know 30, 40 years, right? They yeah. they're incredibly experienced, have a lot of um, you know, experience with clients and research and study. And there now are dozens of studies supporting intuitive eating. And so, you know, the the kind of intuitive eating that I practice, I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. You don't you can't call yourself that unless you've gone through uh, their program to get certified in intuitive eating. And their program is very much about let's not turn intuitive eating into a diet. Here's all the ways that that can show up. Here's all the ways that people tend to try to turn intuitive eating into a diet. Here's how you can, you know, promote intuitive eating and um, promote your practice without selling weight loss. Barry and I say this all the time. It's almost frustrating that we've had to name it intuitive eating because it's just eating, right? It's Mm -hmm. eating as we should do normally. But like you said, you were lucky enough to get to the age of 20 and have, you know, not be interrupted. But so many people, you know, we are born in intuitive eaters. But I remember, you know, even being seven, eight years old, it was, you know, you can't have dessert unless you finish your plate because, you know, that's a treat and then you'll deserve it if you finished a full meal. And then, you know, our parents aren't doing that to make sure that we're like staying thin or whatever. Like we just grew up with these messages that they didn't realize how damaging they could be, but they're all kind of, they were messing with our relationship with food from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. There's, they're not doing it intentionally. I think a lot of parents, you know, just are doing the best they can mm-hmm. and think they're doing right by their kids by telling them not to eat sugar or, yeah. you know, and now it's, ugh, I mean, it's so compounded now with all the messages about gluten and dairy and this and that, you know, it's, I yeah. think parents so- are very confused. Often. That was kind of the thing that I saw. I don't know who I saw it from, but it was a post along the lines of, I feel best when I cut out this and I, like my body functions best when I cut out this and I'm listening to my body. And it's that phrase of listening yeah. to my body that I feel is the one that has really been like co-opted. And Mm -hmm. I just get so frustrated, but like you said, like there are people without nutrition degrees who are really kind of at the forefront of the voices of this like distorted version of intuitive eating, or it's not even intuitive eating, just, Mm -hmm. you know, using the language inappropriately. Um, But there's also this element of being an intuitive eater, but being in a thinner body, but saying I'm an intuitive eater, but recognizing that if you're an intuitive eater, you might look different. And I find Mm -hmm. that's also super hard to navigate. If I come out and say, look, I'm an intuitive eater. I eat what I want, but I also have the privilege of, you know, being in a smaller body. There is that connotation or I'm worried about there's a connotation from an audience, from people I see that, oh, well, if she does this and she looks like that, then Mm -hmm. I can do this and look like that. And I find it just very, I just feel like if we talk about intuitive eating, we have to talk about privilege. Mm -hmm. 
Is that something that you, you, I know in your book, you spoke about it, but is that something that you discuss with your clients up front? I mean, it depends on the client, but I think, um, you know, it's always it, now I'm all virtual with my clients. So it's, it's sort of a different environment and different situation. But when I was seeing people in person, it's like the bodies are in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Your people are noticing your body. And of course it might be a topic of discussion and it, it might come up and you sort of feel out to me. I mean, I don't necessarily lead with it because I don't think discussions of privilege, you know, as much as they are sort of um, the currency online and like people, people sort of get it somewhat online. I think in in sort of less hyper-woke, hyper-online settings, people don't really understand what you're talking about always. You know, if you're working with someone from a, a working class background who's, you know, maybe kind of older, you know, 10, 20 years older than me or something like that, I, I'm probably not going to have great luck explaining thin privilege to them in the first session. You know, maybe we build some trust. We build, you know, we, I plant some seeds around that and discuss like, you know, my body looks different and that's not because of anything I'm doing with eating. It's because, you know, it's because of genetics. My whole family looks like this, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, probably not getting into a real in-depth discussion around it right away, but maybe we work up to that, you know, or if it's someone who's coming in, who is really, uh, online and, you know, on the left and young and whatever, and sort of gets that language, then yeah, we can talk about it maybe right away. Maybe they want it, maybe they come in wanting to discuss it, you know? Um, but I think, you know, the fact that privilege might be a topic of discussion to me, isn't something to shy away from. To me, that's, Mm. You know, I I navigate my privilege in various ways online, one of them being not really showing pictures of myself. If you look at my Instagram, it's all just quotes. It's like memes. It's not, you know, I don't have pictures of me in there. And some people say that, you know, the way to grow your social media is to do like introductory posts every once in a while being like, hey, new followers with a picture of you and, you know, showing them who you are. And to me, that's all just BS. Like I... I probably have grown more slowly on social media than I would have otherwise. And I also have very conflicting feelings about even having to be on social media these days because of just all the harms that I think social media has wrought in our society. If you watch the documentary, The Social Dilemma, it's kind of a good encapsulation of all this stuff, all the ways that social media has polarized us, has made us really addicted and has sort of pushed us to the extremes of thought and created this sort of discourse and this this incentive for basically angry angry interactions are what drives engagement on social media and so that's what gets sort of promoted and so that's that's kind of the direction it pushes us all in is like you know you thought this but it's actually that and like zing I got you and you know this sort of angry energy Mm -hmm. um and there's a million other reasons that I think social media is super problematic and so whatever. Anyway, that's a little bit of a digression. But for me personally, I think in my in my work sort of in a public sphere like social media, I don't make it about me and my body. I make it about the ideas and I amplify other people's messages and, you know, try to have a diversity of viewpoints on my podcast, you know, people from all different walks of life, all different, you know, genders, races, ethnicities, body sizes, abilities, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, to me, that's been a way to 
um, sort of help show that intuitive eating isn't just about thin white women telling you like, eat whatever you want, you know, or listen to your body and you'll naturally crave these types of foods. Cause those are just, again, you know, turning intuitive eating into a diet. And, you know, so for me, I think it's really about, um, building in that awareness, that intuitive eating, you know, that the, the bodies are all going to look different. And that even if we all ate the same way or the exact same things in the exact same amounts and did the exact same amount of exercise, we all would look different. You know, that's not, that's not an original thought to me. That's something that we've talked about in intuitive eating and health at every size fields for decades now, I think, um, is this idea that we're not all meant to look the same, you know? And, and so it's not about how you eat and how you move your body and that how I eat and the fact that I eat intuitively does not make me look the way I look. Um, and I think there's this sort of interesting thing that I've discovered through talking to people who found me through my podcast or my other work and then subsequently became sort of more involved in the health at every size and intuitive eating movement too, um, who are larger than me, who are in larger bodies or self-identify as fat in some cases. Um, they've told me that, you know, the fact that I look the way I do, the fact that I'm thin sort of drew them into my work because a part of them at the time when they first got interested in it, a part of them was interested in an anti-diet approach, but a part of them was still holding on to this idea that maybe I can lose weight. Maybe this person has the secret. Maybe she can, you know, show me how to look like she does through intuitive eating. So I kind of brought them in the door in a way you know, with my thin privilege, not even intentionally, right? My, my own, one of the only places I have pictures of myself is on my podcast album art and on my about page. And, you know, people coming in through that have said, yeah, you know, that drew me in. But then I discovered this whole world that was so revolutionary, that was so counter to everything I had thought. And it, it you know, kind of pulled me the rest of the way in to not worrying about how my body looked or not trying to pursue thinness and thinking intuitive eating was going to make me thin, but actually introduced me to the sort of uh, sociopolitical side of things that now I'm so committed to. And now, you know, I'm an activist in my own right. And it's because, you know, you pulled me in through the door because I was still had one foot in, you know, wanting to be thinner. Right. And that's, you know, I don't love that that is the case, right? I wish that we had a world where people could be brought in the door by people much larger than me. But the reality is, you know, the world we live in now is diet culture. Mm -hmm. There are going to be people at all different points on their recovery paths. And some people, you know, in it's just sort of the way it goes. Some people are going to be drawn in by a thinner person and listen to the message from a thinner person in a way that they wouldn't from a larger body person. And so, you know, if we're mindful of that and sort of recognize maybe I can use this privilege to introduce people to some of these deeper ideas and show them that it isn't actually about how my body looks or they're not going to just magically look like me through intuitive eating, but here are all the other benefits of intuitive eating and a health at every size approach. That's one way we can use, you know, the unearned privileges and the unearned just sort of, you know, ways that our bodies might look um, as thinner people. And larger bodied people have different um, ways that they can bring people in, you know, because there are some people on their intuitive eating path or anti-diet slash eating disorder recovery path who want to work with someone who looks like them, who want to work with someone mm -hmm. larger bodied because they believe that's 
you know, that person's going to get it in a way a smaller body person wouldn't. And so, you know, there's very much room for and a need for larger body people in this work too. Um, but it's just, we all kind of have different maybe positions that we can work from and ways that we can bring people in. I love that you said that. And I think it's so important to celebrate and discuss diversity within intuitive eating, because like you said, if we all ate the same in a day, we've said this before, we never would all look the same. Um, but it's really important that people also recognize and understand that when you embark on an intuitive eating journey, it will look completely different for you than maybe their friend or the person they're speaking to. And I think a big misconception is that you start eating intuitively and it looks a certain way, if that makes sense. And I think that's actually why people struggle with it so much or struggle to commit to it because they're like, it feels so freeing almost too freeing and we've been taught that we should follow rules and you know feel some sense of restriction and control when it comes to food yeah yeah totally I I I definitely feel it's like a weird concept almost where like people who start intuitive eating it's because they have one foot still in diet culture right Mm -hmm. so they're still looking for an alternative they feel fed up they feel like it's not sustainable but part of them, I feel as though part of them is still torn, right? And then when they start intuitive eating, they start to learn and educate themselves and they cross that barrier. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting concept of like, you know, when you are in diet culture, have one foot in diet culture, we're so reliant on being told this is good, this is bad, this is X, this, you have X, Y, Z quantity of whatever. And then getting rid of it, it's, it's, it's anxiety ridden for something that's supposed to get rid of anxieties. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? So it is, I feel like this weird paradigm for people who are just starting intuitive eating because it's so confusing, isn't it? Like a total shift of what people are used to. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's worth saying here too, that because you both have backgrounds in eating disorders as well. Like, you know, when people have an eating, just an active eating disorder, or when they're in early stages of recovery from an eating disorder, the full expression of intuitive eating may not be available to them, Mm -hmm. right? The idea of, you know, just following your hunger and your fullness and trusting those cues and not worrying about sort of a set, you know, having a meal plan or set times a day when you eat, that can be actually really detrimental to people in early recovery or who are just starting to recover from in, you know, in practice, in process eating disorders, right? Active eating disorders. Um, Because when you have an active eating disorder, you oftentimes there's physiological changes that happen in your body that um, promote restriction for people who, you know, have sort of a more um, classic restrict binge cycle. It might be promoting restriction and binging, right? Um, but, you know, it, it sort of keeps you stuck in that disordered pattern. And, and one of the tools for helping people get out of that is giving them some consistency and some structure in their day with, you know, it might not necessarily be a full meal plan. Like this is exactly what you need to eat and when, but maybe it's a meal pattern. Like, you know, try to eat a meal, a, you know, a meal or snack every three hours or so, you know, alternating between meals and snacks, right, to get your blood sugar sort of back to where you know, the ebbs and flows of human blood sugar sort of naturally um, fall in that cycle. So when you're eating intuitively, you're probably going to find that, yeah, about three three hours after a meal, you might be hungry for a snack, give or take, you know, three, three hours. Um, and it's different maybe for everybody, but on average, that's sort of what it is. And so if, if we're sort of 
you know, someone is in early recovery from an eating disorder, aiming for a pattern like that can help them just start to normalize their, um, their eating and not be so caught up in these cycles of restriction and, and probably binging too. Yeah, that's so important. We, we've spoken about this on a previous podcast episode as well, just like re-nourishing, like if you are in an active eating disorder state, like the point at which you have to re-nourish your brain before you can even really start to conceptually understand these types mm -hmm. of, you know, theories or different understandings. But like you said, there's also that physiological, you know, suppression of appetite, um, hunger, satiety levels, feeling like extremely full, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, painfully full even as well. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, it is, but yeah, it is an interesting thing. And I think that it just makes it more, um, important that if you are interested in starting an intuitive eating journey, you have to do it with someone who is trained in intuitive eating. It's not something that you can necessarily, or for some people, maybe it is, but if you're an individual who's recovering from an eating disorder, it's, I, professionally think it should be done with a specialist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, for people who are maybe chronic dieters who have never been diagnosed with an eating disorder, who think that they probably don't have one, maybe it's okay to try it on your own and kind of see how it goes. Right. But if you find that you really are struggling with it, that the sort of anxiety of not having, um, you know, a set meal structure or, I mean, honestly, intuitive eating is not about just like eat exactly when you're hungry and stop mm -hmm. when you're full. And like, who cares about when other people are eating <laughs> lunch? If you want to eat lunch two hours before them, like whatever, that's actually not intuitive eating. You know, that's kind of also turning intuitive eating into a diet Yeah, because intuitive eating, I mean, it has 10 principles. Two of the principles are honor your hunger and feel your fullness. Right. But that those are the ones that get turned into this, like all encompassing idea of yeah. what intuitive eating is. Right. And also like how foods feel in your body, which is gentle nutrition. That's the 10th and last principle for a reason. It's the last because you have to go through all the other principles, which are reject the diet mentality, make peace with food, you know, honor your hunger, challenge the food police, all of these things you're breaking down diet culture rules, in some cases, lingering eating disorder rules before you can get to the place of like, trusting when you're full, that food will be there again for you when you're, when you're ready for it. Um, you know, noticing how foods might feel in your body without the sort of diet culture imposition of beliefs and ideas like, oh my God, I ate gluten and now I have like a stinging in my gut or whatever. It's like, you know, I've literally heard people say that like it, yeah, when I exactly. eat this food, it stings. And when I eat this other food, it feels this way. And it's like, okay, you're hyper, hyper focusing right now yeah. on these symptoms and actually, you know, breaking down the diet mentality first is going to be the key to understanding are those symptoms really happening or are those a result of anxiety about the food and this hyper focus on symptoms? Exactly. And I think just going back to what you said about the hunger and satiety principles, they're just two of the 10. And I mm -hmm. think so many people find those the safe ones that they're like, oh, actually, like Barry said at the beginning, it's not an excuse, but kind of that oh yeah, I only eat when I'm hungry and then I actually stop when I'm full. And it's like, well, actually there's a lot more flexibility that should go along with that. <laughs> yeah. It's like all of a sudden it's like the hunger fullness diet. And yeah. it's like, no, you should be able to like, I don't, I always go back to this one example. I feel like it's probably the most common one. Like you're not hungry, but someone offers you food and it's like a socially. Yeah. It's like you're at a birthday to... party. Exactly. Have a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. I know I use that often too. I know. I feel like we have to like find a new example because I feel like everyone (laughs) uses that, but it's like, I want to find one that gives another perspective. um, It's like you you can be having a movie night on your own and just be like, I'm going to have a bag of popcorn to myself tonight because I can. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because yeah, totally. popcorn and movies go together. Yeah. And that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I said this on another podcast, actually, which is so funny. And um, I, it happens like literally every night. I'm not a nighttime eater. I don't like dessert. Like I'm a very savory. Like if it's dessert, mm-hmm. it's like a bag of pretzels that mm-hmm. I have shipped in from America because pretzels are just <laughs> not the same here in the UK. <laughs> and justice for pretzels and um like that's my go-to snack where like my partner is very much like candy chocolate and it's just like Mm -hmm. not what I like I wouldn't reach for it ever and then sometimes he'll be like oh try this and be like no not not really and the mood like just don't want to and he's like oh well I thought no foods are off limits and it's like Mm. (laughs) it's like (laughs) I just don't want it like but then I'm like oh and like sometimes to be able to show to him I'm like okay I'll have a bit because it just doesn't matter does it Mm -hmm. and I feel like in a weird way sometimes I just have to like I don't know it's just one of those things where like if he says that then it's like okay I'll just have a bit like it's really not a big deal but like Mm -hmm. sometimes I just like my my automatic response is no because I don't really fancy it Mm -hmm. um but it is like it gets me thinking sometimes just like just an interesting concept of like if you don't want something but then like being able, like there's no rules but like if you was like want proving it, that you're an intuitive eater yeah it's right. just like a weird it's a weird thing especially if you're trying to assist someone with their like leading by example with mm-hmm. someone else's relationship with food I find that a very interesting thing um that I'm currently experiencing yeah I mean and I used to do like meal support services with people with eating disorders where Mm -hmm. I would eat with them and help them sit with fullness and help them you know get through the meal and figure out what to order and all that stuff and uh you know it was like sometimes I wasn't hungry sometimes we'd meet at like 5 p.m and that's not my dinner time you know my dinner time is usually much later but it's like well okay I'm gonna have like a big dinner at five and that's just that's just how it is and Mm -hmm. you know having been sort of clicked back into intuitive eating by that point, it was like, yeah, I can roll with this. I can be flexible. I can eat at whatever time, even if I'm not super hungry. Um, but you know, years before that, when I was in my disordered eating, I think that would have been like terrifying and I would have felt the need to sort of organize the rest of my day around it, you know? Yeah. It's funny. Just another example of just as long as I can remember Sundays have been like, we have a roast or a barbecue at three, four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and Barry, so just, Barry just thinks that's like so rogue. Like, <laughs> There's like a few things when I moved here that were just like very culturally apparent. The idea of like a Sunday roast at like 3 PM, which is like literally like a Sunday family dinner eaten at 3 PM. And I just felt so confused because I've never done that. But then being in invited like Sophie's family invited me to her parents house for like a summer it was like a summer barbecue but like same roast Mm -hmm. and I was just like it it was just a weird one I was like okay so I'm gonna have dinner at three I just like felt like (laughs) well like is it lunch like yeah am I gonna eat (laughs) I was just like okay I'll roll with it but like it it was just like um it just wasn't part of my like life experience if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um but yeah it, it is interesting also how like your your norms and social connections formed like within your own household can also kind of impact your into like for Sophie that's a very intuitive thing for you to do right have a Sunday mm-hmm. roast at yeah 3 it's just that's how it is I don't even think about it I'm just like 
you know, meal times are not the same on a Sunday. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I think cultural, you know, differences in food, food ways and food experiences sort of have that intuitive quality to them if you can mm. if you can accept them and I feel like with intuitive eating you know it is it is so much about getting back to that kind of acceptance with what you grew up with and what your cultural um, sort of traditions around food are that so many people get that stripped away through diet culture you know I'm thinking mm-hmm. especially of people you know black indigenous and people of color for example who, you know, are told that their cultural traditional foods are unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And there's so many recipes that are like lightened up, you know, mac and cheese or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, actually, can we can we stop demonizing these foods and shaming people for eating them and help people just get back to a, a peaceful relationship with them that they deserve, that we all deserve, you know, we all yeah. deserve to have that, that kind of peace with our cultural food traditions where it's like, yeah, you know, eating is different on a Sunday and whatever. Yeah, definitely. One yeah. thing I did want to discuss is kind of the delivery of intuitive eating on social media, even by other kind of health professionals where, their intentions are good. You know, they want to get across that intuitive eating is a much more enjoyable way of life and, you know, improving your relationship with food. But do you feel that sometimes the messaging can be aggressive in, Mm. you know, I, it might be more in the UK where kind of health professionals have, I know they're trying to do the right thing in terms of, like I said, delivering this message and educating people, but it kind of feels like almost like a cult, like you're either in it and you do intuitive eating right and you reject everything else or you're outside the bubble and, you know, you're not allowed in. I always Mm -hmm. use the analogy like that mean girls, like you can't sit with us because that's kind (laughs) of, it's that like tension. And I think like, like I said a million times, I'm a dietitian. I love intuitive eating, but I don't, practice it with clients. Cause I just haven't figured out for myself the right way to navigate it because mm-hmm. I do feel like it's so diet culture sometimes. And I, I understand that like, as a dietitian, it's my responsibility to help change that narrative. And I get that, but I'm still, I'm still on the fence, but I feel like, uh, there's a lot of people who probably look at what I do and, and, you know, don't agree with it. And it is that kind of like, you can't sit with us because you're not an intuitive eating dietitian. Yeah. I think it's so, it's so tricky and it's so unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things I'm seeing about social media and just sort of realizing after many years of partaking in it and being on it and building a platform that I'm like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like how it sort of flattens people's arguments and philosophies into these sort of one-dimensional posts that are seen to like represent all of who they are, all of their philosophy. And it pushes us because of those algorithms, how they prioritize the sort of angry, um, you know, counterintuitive, like novel discourse. There's actually research on this that like novelty and sort of heightened um, angry type emotions are what drives engagement on social media. And I think that that has, you know, for me as a journalist, right, like I'm sort of a longer form writer tend to be. And when I adopted social media, I noticed in myself the tone sort of shifting and the the language getting pared down to like what can fit in a meme and convey the most punchy sort of message in however many characters I have. And maybe there's a caption where I can expand a little bit, but the caption still has a limit. And 
you know, it's, I know for myself, it pushed me to be more strident and more sort of, um, black and white in my delivery than I would otherwise be than, and much more so than I am in my long form journalism, much more so than I am with my clients, you know, or with a group coaching program or something like even, you know, in my online courses, I have, uh, uh, forums, you know, online forums, I can expand and be much more nuanced there, you know? So I think it's partly the medium. And I see this with a lot of other people too. I think that they're so much more strident on social media than I know them to be in person or in, Mm. you know, real life. Right. Which is so so ironic because the whole concept of embracing the gray and, Mm -hmm. you know, there is no black and white thinking yet certain platforms, you know, or force us to speak in a very matter of fact, black or white, Mm -hmm. yes or no kind of way. Even when we talk about something that is so no rules, um, Mm -hmm. I just find it, it's very interesting. It is. And I think like, you know, so there's that piece of it, right. That it's, it's forcing us into this black and white sort of language. And then there's also the forces that want to co-opt intuitive eating and turn it into a diet. And I think, a lot of intuitive eating practitioners that I know for myself are very angry about that or very like frustrated mm, by yeah. that and want to stand against that and sort of show this is not, you know, over here, this sort of co-optation of intuitive eating is not real intuitive eating. Here's what real intuitive eating looks like. But again, it's like trying to do that in a format that is so flattened, that is so compressed, that has no room for discussion and nuance and you know, sort of awareness that, yeah, of course, like I often say, you know, to get over a fence, you have to straddle it unless you're Mm going to take some kind of flying leap, but that's not really possible for most people. You know, it's, I straddled the fence myself getting over to this side and, and I don't even necessarily want to think of it as like two sides because it's, it's a, it's a path. And it's, you know, of course I had my diet culture thinking that I had to shed a lot of, and probably am still shedding, you know, and I'll look back 10 years from now and be like, that's where I was then, you know, in 2021, here's what I was still sort of unlearning. Yeah. And so that's it's the thing, like we're, we're dynamic and the whole process should be dynamic as well. Cause things mm-hmm. are changing and it's, it's not something that's fixed. Um, which again, is just hard to talk about. It is. It's hard to talk about in, in most platforms. I mean, it's, you know, I think on podcasts, it's easier to kind of get that nuance across. Right. And I know that when I'm talking on my podcast, it can be such a more nuanced conversation with a lot of back and forth and a lot of clarification and sort of like, um, development as you go in the conversation. And then when it comes to like, okay, we got to promote this episode and make a meme for it for social media, it gets pared down to like the most sort of grabby point, right? Mm. From this whole hour and a half, you know, hour long, hour and a half long conversation that had so much more nuance and sort of winding roads to get to where we ended up. So, you know, it's just, I think the medium, the medium is, is really the problem in a lot of cases. Yeah. Do you think we are heading in the right direction? I know we kind of said at the beginning of the episode that actually diet culture is still so strong. Do you think that both in the UK and the US, from what you know, what you've seen, things are going in the right direction? If that's yeah. not too difficult to answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tricky, right? I mean, it's it's always so messy and you really don't see this stuff fully until hindsight, you know, mm. the hist- history sort of um, 
bears things out in a way that maybe we can't see in the present. But I do think, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm optimistic. I have hope that that things are moving in a positive direction, that things are um, shifting more towards, you know, body diversity being accepted towards, um, you know, fat stigma being uh, eliminated in some pockets of the world. I've, I've definitely seen an uptick in like certain people I know in real life who are, you know, more progressive minded type thinkers who would have been, you know, and who did kind of fat shame and stigmatize larger bodies and stigmatize certain ways of eating, you know, a couple of years ago, now speaking out against that and recognizing the error of their ways. And, you know, in, um, media, we're seeing companies and and media platforms and stuff stopping airbrushing. And Mm -hmm. I know in the UK, right, there was a, isn't there a bill now, or maybe it's, maybe it's law that um, things that have been altered, digital images that have been altered have to be disclosed that they've been altered. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stuff like that. And the, and the fact that in the UK too, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of the the UK recently. I I think we're definitely heading um, in the right direction. I find a bit more progressive here. Um, Yes. Yeah. And acceptance is also more left, like even like uh, not to get into a politics conversation, but like the UK's version of right is still like America's left, if that makes sense, um, when it comes to like social mm-hmm. situations. Um, mm-hmm. So I find this stuff just progresses a lot quicker here than it does in the States. Yeah. And I saw that was that recent um, introduction of a bill in, I guess, the House of Commons that was saying like, we need to stop the quote unquote obesity strategy and Mm -hmm. implement health at every size in, um, you know, practitioners offices that all health practice, healthcare practitioners need to be trained in health at every size and, um, start practicing that way and stop using BMI as a measure of health, which is just like mind explosion. Like I can't imagine that happening here. Maybe we're, you know, (laughs) a few years out, you know, 10 years or something out from that happening here too. But it gives me so much hope, even if that's maybe going to be sort of an uphill battle to get that, to get that passed. I think just the fact that it was brought by this bipart or I guess multipartisan is what you have right now, just two parties, but, um, you know, this multipartisan coalition of, um, members of parliament, like that's huge. Yeah, definitely. And I think the fact that we're seeing it here, we would we would definitely at some point see the US um, make it happen as well. But you guys are just obviously on such a larger scale that it's probably going to take a little bit more time. But yeah, there is hope. <laughs> and with also more lobbying by like the diet industry, the pharmaceutical Completely. industry, and healthcare not being nationalized. I think it's probably easier in a nationalized healthcare system to implement that kind of approach and say, okay, all practitioners need to be trained in this and mm-hmm. then like make that happen versus here. It's just such a hodgepodge. Yeah, definitely. Well, 100%. Thank you so much for, I mean, this conversation went so quickly but I think it's just, we've done episodes on intuitive eating before, but we really kind of dug into a different perspective on this episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been a great conversation and hope we can continue it down the line. 100%. Yes. Thank you you so much for everyone that's listening who wants to follow your, your journey or listen to your podcast, read your book, where, where can they find you? Yeah, the best place to find me is just my website, christyharrison.com. 
Um, there you can find my podcast, my book. You can find links to my social media, although again, I'm not super active on it these days, um, but there's there's some good memes and stuff if you want to get more. Um, and my blog and newsletter, actually, my newsletter is sort of where I'm the most active right now because I'm in the process of writing my second book, which is actually called Rethinking. Thank you. It's called Rethinking Wellness. And it's about oh, wellness culture and sort of, you know, how diet culture has infiltrated um you know, our conception of wellness, but also like all these other just pieces of misinformation and conspiracy theories and stuff that have infiltrated the wellness world and, you know, fraud and scams, like, you know, all these, it's just, it's so fascinating to research. I'm having a really great time with it. So that won't be out until, yeah, it's, I'm really happy about it. It it won't be out until 2023, but. um, Oh, wow. Okay. You know, if you follow we'll me, patiently um, wait for that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if you subscribe to my newsletter, I'll I'll yeah. send out the news about it. So awesome! That well, thank you so great. much. We'll put all that info in the show notes as well for everyone. Um, but I do highly recommend Christy's podcast as well if, if you're someone who wants to start your intuitive eating journey. Thank you. Yeah, and it's called Food Psych, so you can listen to it wherever you're listening to this. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of the Forking Wellness Podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. And share with your friends if you love this episode. It really does help us get seen in the chart. You can now also order our Forking Wellness book anywhere books are sold. Order it on Amazon Prime for next day delivery. And Barnes & Noble in America. And if you love the book, we would so appreciate a review on Amazon. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and we really hope you enjoy it. We'll speak to you guys next week. Bye.